Thank you, Kevin and Matthew. Again, welcome to those who are just joining us uh, recently here. Let's begin this morning by opening our Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. Our text for this morning is Matthew 21, verses 12 to 17. Matthew 21, 12 to 17. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple. And he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Well, this is the second proof of Jesus' authority uh, to the city of Jerusalem. Last week we saw Jesus ride into town on a donkey to the crowd shout, Hosanna to the son of David. That was the first proof, the first sign to Jerusalem that Jesus was the king. Today in this second proof, Jesus is going to clear the temple, cleanse the temple. And he's going to clear out all those who bought and sold. He's going to clear out the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Jesus is going to flip some tables and he's going to quote some scripture. And all of this is designed by our Lord as evidence that he is the Messiah. But the religious leaders, they refuse to accept him. They become angry in verse 15. They were indignant. And so here is the beginning of the hostilities of Passion Week. And there's so much in these brief verses. We're going to see a partial glimpse of the wrath of God. Jesus is going to flip tables and and we see kind of a a glimpse of his wrath. We'll see what makes God angry. We'll we'll see in this text what makes his son angry and, and Jesus attacks here the whole temple system. It's an attack on the hypocrisy of the nation. They had forsaken prayer, which was to be a primary focus in the temple. My house shall be called a house of prayer. And when we look at Jeremiah chapter 7, which is the quote there, um, the den of robbers, what we'll see is that it's a rebuke here of the hypocrisy that's going on. And so Jesus cleared out the hypocrisy and restored true prayer. We also have here the healing of the blind and the lame. Jesus, in our text, accepts the title, Son of David. Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus answers, Yes, in verse 16. And then Jesus refers to Psalm 8, verse 2. 
which when we come to see what he's saying there, I think it'll blow us away. It's, it's really amazing what Jesus says with so little, with just a, a verse or two from God's word, he's saying so much about who he is and what he has come to do. When Jesus came to the temple on that day, he revealed himself as the son of David. And I called this sermon, The Wonderful Works of Jesus. After verse 15, where it says, but when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did. And so let's look this morning at the wonderful works of Jesus in Jerusalem at the temple. And we'll do so under three headings. First, let's see, uh, first of all, his consideration for the Father's house. His consideration for the Father's house in verse 12 and 13. And specifically, when we think about his consideration, we see the zeal that he has for his Father's name, which is tied to the temple and everything that happens at the temple. And so Jesus has a zeal for the name of his father, for the house of his father. Again, this is in verses 12 and 13. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Now, Matthew doesn't give us any markers of time here. Jesus, according to Matthew, enters Jerusalem and he enters the temple. But Mark tells us that these two events were separated by one day. And so if you want to turn to Mark uh, chapter 11, let's just go over there and and look at that. We're going to actually read quite a bit of scripture this morning. Mark 11, Mark 11, 11. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now this was on the day of the triumphal entry that we looked at last week in Matthew 21. Verse 12 of Mark 11, on the following day, so it's night when he arrives, he looks at the temple, looks around. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. We're going to look at that account next week in the the next passage in Matthew. But then look at verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and bought in the temple, and we can stop there. And so Mark informs us that Jesus entered Jerusalem in the evening, and then he went back to Bethany and cleared the temple the next day. And the day of the temple clearing was either Monday or Tuesday. It's it's depending on whether the triumphal entry was Sunday, as has traditionally been believed, or whether it's on Monday, which MacArthur prefers. I'm not sure Um, I I don't even have the the resources that are going to help me to kind of really answer that for us. But it was either on Sunday or Monday. And so what's happening in our text is either on Monday or on Tuesday. But what I think is important for us to know is that 
the, the fact that there was a day in between helps us to see that what Jesus did here was not done just merely in a burst of anger. This was a thought-out course of action. Jesus had a night to sleep on it, if we want to think about it that way, and he planned this. And it was an, a, an attack, and it, and it was an attack not so much on the buyers and the sellers, although they were the ones that were directly involved. It was more of an attack on the religious leaders that allowed that buying and selling. And to really understand this, we need to kind of dig into the historical context to really understand what's all happening here. And so let's start with the temple complex. Now, the temple complex was a massive area, a massive area with multiple layers. And we'll start in the middle here as we think about this. The, the middle of the, the temple proper was, was the... Um, was really the whole sanctuary uh, system. The whole temple building was there. And, th- and that temple building had a large front, sh- front porch, which led into an inner sanctuary. And inside of that inner sanctuary, there was the Holy of Holies. That was the area where only the high priest could go. And so if we start with the Holy of Holies, the Holy of Holies was about 30 feet by 30 feet. And again, this whole building is about 90 feet high. And so there's this holy of holies, this, this little room, 30 by 30. And a large curtain separated it from the sanctuary, which is also sometimes called the nave. And so there's this holy of holies in the middle, separated by uh, this curtain. Now, in the old days, the, the Ark of the Covenant would have been in there. That wasn't in Herod's temple. Um, but there's the holy of holies. And then outside of the holy of holies was the sanctuary. And that was where the priest could go and and burn incense, and it had a curtain in front of it as well. And that room was 30 by 60, and again, it was 90 feet high. And so this inner room, only the high priest could go, and only once a year on the Day of Atonement. In the sanctuary, the priest could go, and they would burn incense there kind of on a daily basis, but only the priest could enter that area. Then outside of the sanctuary, there was that large porch and a little court there as well where only the priests could go. And it was known as the court of the priests. And in that area, there was the altar and the laver and there was an area for slaughtering the animals. Now outside of the court of the priests was what was called the court of the Israelites. And in this section, only the ceremonially clean Israelite men could go. And this section was about 16 and a half feet kind of in, in depth, but there, there may have been some kind of wings that would go around so that the men could stand and watch what the priests were doing. But this was a very, a, a very small area, although it was the whole width of the, the temple complex now. And so it's about 200 feet wide by 16 and a half feet. Now, outside of the court of the Israelites was the court of the women. And this is where any Israelite man could go. Men, women, and children as well could go into what was called the court of the women. And the court of the women was about 200 feet by 200 feet. And separating this this whole area was a wall somewhere between two and a half and four and a half feet high. And this wall was there to keep out the Gentiles and the unclean people from entering into 
the, the holy area, which would have, you know, in the old days would have been entered in on the penalty of death. And so 200 by 200, quite a, a large area, the court of women, Israelites could go there with their families and their wives, and then the men could go further into the court of the Israelites. Now, outside of all of that structure and, and really surrounding this whole thing were all kinds of porticos and, and really it was a, a separated area in itself. This was the court of the Gentiles. And so the court of the Gentiles, I, I mentioned it earlier in one of the previous messages, it was, it was 13 and a half hectares, about 33 acres. Again, surrounded by porticos and, and it surrounded the entire temple area, front, back, all the way around. And this was known again as the court of the Gentiles. And this area, this whole area that we've just described was properly called the temple. This was the temple mount. And it's this area, this court of the Gentiles that Jesus cleared out on this day. And so what you get then is this picture of kind of smaller and smaller areas for increasingly reduced groups, starting from the outside working in, only uh, Gentiles could go in there, and then, and then women only, women and children, and then now it's reduced only to men, and then only priests, and then only the high priest, and that only once a year. <clears throat> now again, it seems that the whole trade that was going on, that, that was happening here, was... Uh, in this court of the Gentiles. And it, it seems that this practice was relatively new. Now, we don't have an exact timing on this, but it seems fairly certain that, that this trade, this selling, used to happen on the Mount of Olives. But that sometime fairly recently, maybe even in the last three or four years, that, that this trade was now allowed on the Temple Mount in the court of the Gentiles. Now, the actual trade itself was a, a necessary thing. It would have been almost impossible to bring sheep for Passover all the way from Galilee or, or even from further. Remember, people from all over the world would come to Jerusalem for Passover. And of course, the sheep needed to be approved by the priest. They had to be sheep without blemish, and so you could theoretically bring a sheep all the way from Galilee and then realize that it wasn't an approved sheep and so then you'd have to buy a sheep anyways and so this this trade was somewhat necessary also remember the temple tax that we talked about in Matthew 17 27 the temple tax that Peter paid by fishing and and catching that coin out of the mouth of the fish that temple tax had to be paid in a certain type of coinage. And so there was money lenders that were needed. And, and the reasoning for that, this half shekel tax, was because the Jews didn't want images of pagan rulers or pagan idols on the coins that were used in the temple. And so they only accepted this certain kind of Tyrian silver or gold coinage. And so there was some need for money change uh, money changers, there was some need for selling of animals. But that used to happen on the Mount of Olives, and that seems to be Jesus' primary concern here. The concern was more the location than the actual service. And when you think about that, if, you, if you're back in our text, if you look at it again, 
Notice that he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And so it's not just the practices of those who were selling in the temple, although it is, uh, you know, theorized, it, it, it is believed that they were overcharging and that they were kind of making exorbitant profits and taking advantage of the poor at that time. But it's not just the, the practices of those who were selling, but Jesus also drove out those who bought. And again, they're buying for the purpose of their worship. And so it's more than just the practice. It seems that it's the location that Jesus is upset about. It's that all of this was happening in the only place where Gentiles and unclean people could come to worship at the temple. And Jesus justifies his action here with the word of God. And so first he quotes from Isaiah 56 and verse 7. And so let's go ahead and let's, let's turn over there. Again, in our text, in verse 13, he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. And that comes from Isaiah chapter 56. The context here is that God will accept the foreigner who joins himself to the Lord. And the idea is, is that if you love Yahweh and you keep his covenant, he will accept you. And these people, he says in verse 7, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples or all nations. Now, Matthew only quotes the first part of that third line, for my house shall be called a house of prayer. See, Yahweh's vision for the temple, which he calls his house, my house, was for it to be a place of prayer. But all the buying and selling, the coin exchanges, the pigeons, the animals, it would have made quiet prayer very difficult. And again, this court of the Gentiles was the closest that a Gentile or a lame person or an unclean person could get to the sanctuary. Now let's turn over here to the book of Kings. Let's go to 1 Kings chapter 8 as we think about this house as a house of prayer. 1 Kings chapter 8. This is Solomon's dedication of the temple. And already he thinks of it as a place of prayer. And, and you remember but that before the, the temple was built, there was the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was, was called what? It was the place of meeting or the tent of meeting. And so the idea was that Yahweh dwelt in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, or then once it was built, he dwelt in the temple. And that was then the place to meet him and to lift one, one's prayers to him. And so in 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon is dedicating the temple. And he says, in verse, starting in verse 27, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less 
this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea. O Lord my God, listen to the cry and to the prayer of your servant that your servant prays before you this day. That your eyes may be open night and day toward this house. The place of which you have said, my name shall be there. And that's going to be important for us later on. The, the name of Yahweh is connected with the temple. Solomon continues that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers towards this place and listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray towards this place and listen in heaven your dwelling place and when you hear, forgive. Verse 31, if a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath and comes and swears his oath before your altar in this house, then hear in heaven. Verse 33, when your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you, and if they turn again to you and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them again to the land that you gave to their fathers. Verse 35, when heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, if they pray towards this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, when you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon your land which you have given to your people as an inheritance. Verse 37, if there is famine in the land, if there is pestilence or blight or mildew or locust or caterpillar, if their enemy besieges them in the land at their gates, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart and stretching out his hands towards this house, then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways for you, you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind, that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land that you gave to our fathers. Verse 41, likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays toward this house, here in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. Verse 44, if your people go out to battle against their enemy by whatever way you shall send them and they pray to the Lord toward the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, then hear in heaven their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause. And then again in verse 46, if they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin and you are angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy far off or near, yet if they turn their heart in the land to which you have carried to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors saying we have sinned and have acted per perversely and wickedly if they repent with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies 
who carried them captive and pray to you toward their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name. Then hear in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea, and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions that they have committed against you and grant them compassion in the sight of those who carried them captive, that they may have compassion on them for they are your people and your heritage, which you have brought out of Egypt from the midst of the iron furnace. Let your eyes be open to the plea of your servant and to the plea of your people Israel, giving ear to them whenever they call to you. For you separated them from among all the peoples of the earth to be your heritage, as you declared through Moses your servant when you brought our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God. Now the basic structure which Solomon prays here is, is something along these lines. When things go bad and your people recognize it and they turn and they, they come back to you in repentance, then they're going to pray in this place. Or wherever they are, they're going to pray towards this place. And Solomon's request is that when that happens, hear and answer the prayer. And so this house which is called by the name of Yahweh is to be a house of prayer. It's to be the place where God dwells and to which the people pray. And prayer at its root is simply responding to God. It's talking to God. Prayer is acknowledging God. And there's a fellowship with God that happens as we respond to what happens in our lives. And the Lord is the one who brings about all that happens in our lives and we respond to those things and we respond according to His Word. And our response is prayer in various forms as we respond to what God is doing in our lives and we recognize God in our lives. Our response is prayer in various forms, whether thanksgiving or confession or various requests that we make known to Him, or praise and thanksgiving. All of this is prayer, trusting Him, depending on Him. All of these are forms of prayer, and all of it is fellowship with God. Now, we can do this anywhere, but for Israel, the temple had a special significance as the place where God dwelt. It was where His name was especially placed, and so they would pray at the temple when they were there they would they would pray at the temple and and they would pray towards the temple when they were away <clears throat> now in the new testament era we are the temple of the lord and so we are to be a place of prayer and our entire lives should be devoted to fellowship with god by prayer but when jesus comes that day and and arrives at the temple instead of seeing this prayer, what he sees is buying and selling. And instead of prayer, he saw corruption. And to show this, he quoted from Jeremiah chapter 7 and verse 11, and and we need to now turn to the book of Jeremiah. And I want to get the context here as well, and so let's go to Jeremiah chapter 7, and we'll start reading In verse 1, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. 
Jeremiah chapter 7, starting in verse 1, the word that came to Jeremiah from Yahweh, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, and so where's Jeremiah? He's at the temple of the Lord, standing in the gate. And and here's what he's to say, hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice with one another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place. And if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave you, gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal? And go after other gods that you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say, we are delivered only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord." See, in Jeremiah's day, the Lord was threatening that they would be removed from the land, that they would be taken captive out of the land. But the people of that day, Israel in that day, they, they just wouldn't believe it. They, they wouldn't listen to Jeremiah. They wouldn't amend their ways or their deeds. And they thought that they were just fine, that they could continue in their sin and there would be no judgment from the Lord. And so do you see what's happening in Jeremiah's day? There's oppression and all manner of wickedness. There's idolatry, worship of false gods. But the people would not repent. But they would come. They, they would, and this is, the, this is just amazing, they would come and worship the Lord while they were doing all of this wickedness. They would come and, and they would reverence the temple. And they would come supposedly to worship and they would say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. I don't know how they said it, like it's probably not like that, but the, you know, it reminds me of a modern kind of worship chorus. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. I'm, I'm doing it again Then that kind of, Jody's always gets on me about these funny songs I make up. <laughs> Sorry, Jody. Uh, the temple of the Lord. So they would, they would kind of think, you know, we're fine. We're, we're safe. This is the temple. God's not going to let the temple be destroyed. And they would come and they would say, we're delivered. We're delivered. Like, we're safe. Nothing to worry about. But they would not actually change their ways. And what's going on is that they basically took refuge in the temple and they thought that they could continue in their sins because God would not allow any harm to come to the temple. There would be no judgment for them so long as they were in the temple. And so what happened then was that the temple became a den 
of robbers. It became like a, a, a cave. That's what that word literally means, at least in the Greek. It's a, it's a cave. It's a, a den. It's a hideout of robbers. And so do you see what's going on here? The, the sinners come and they hide at the temple. And it's a, it's a big show. It's, it's really, it's just utter hypocrisy. And they come to the temple and they pretend everything is wonderful and everything is good. And the temple has now become a hideout for sinners. Now, if we read on in Jeremiah, we will see that, that God is going to bring judgment and that the temple won't protect them and it too would be destroyed. And so when Jesus said back in Matthew 21, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. He's referring back to what Jeremiah said, and he's telling the people that they were hypocrites, that they put on a show at the temple, making the temple a hideout for their sin. And they are in fact robbers, where the Hebrew means a violent robber or a brigand. And the Greek means a robber, a highwayman, a bandit, a, a revolutionary, an insurrectionist. You see what's going on is they're actually, they're trying to overthrow God's rule all while pretending to be submissive to it by coming to the temple to worship. And we're going to see this so clearly, this fact that they're really trying to overthrow God's rule in just a few days when they are going to kill God's son, the Messiah. And so here they are doing their worship, and yet they're so contrary to God that they're actually going to kill the Messiah, the son of God. Now, Jesus, unlike the hypocrites, he is truly concerned for God's name which again was connected to the temple and and he sees God, his father, being slighted. He sees him being dishonored in this temple area that was supposed to be a house of prayer and Jesus takes action. Jesus here alone takes action. His disciples aren't mentioned at all. But again in verse 12, Jesus entered the temple And drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers. And the seats of those who sold pigeons. Now exactly how he managed this we aren't told. It would seem that some level of supernatural strength would be required to to do this. He drove them all out it says. All who sold and bought in the temple. All who sold All who bought, he overturned the tables. Remember, there's thousands of people in Jerusalem for Passover, maybe even hundreds of thousands of people in this 30-acre area, and Jesus cleared it out. Now, Jesus had cleared this area out earlier in his ministry according to John chapter 2, and I'll just read it for you. This is John 2, 13 to 16. The Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he, was, uh, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables and he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away, 
Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Now our text and this later cleansing, there's no mention of a whip. There's no mention of the the sheep and oxen being driven out, although that's what was largely being sold. But you can still imagine the, the chaos something like this would have caused amongst all of those people. Now on the the grounds there, there would have been Roman soldiers. They would have been around for security, but somehow the the soldiers left Jesus alone. We, We really don't know how that happened. The sellers of the pigeons, they, they left their chairs, and I, I imagine likely in fear, they, they get up and, and leave, and, and Jesus is flipping their chairs as, as they kind of clear the area. Perhaps the soldiers were afraid as well, and, but again, we're not told, and there's just so much more that I'd like to know about how this happened. But what we do know is that Jesus had consideration for his father's house. Jesus was concerned about the place where Yahweh's name dwelt. We also know that there are certain Old Testament texts that predict that the Messiah would purify the temple. In John's Gospel, he refers to Psalm 69, verse 9, which is, I'm going to read this just from John 2.17, the very next verse from what I just read. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. In Zechariah 14, it says that on that day, and this is speaking of the day of the Messiah's return, on that day, there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. There shall no longer be a traitor. There shall no longer be buying and selling. And Malachi chapter 3 also speaks about the coming of Yahweh to purify his temple. This is Malachi 3, 1 to 4. It says, behold, I send my messenger. I think that's referring to John the Baptist there. He will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi. Again, the priestly tribe. And refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. Now these prophecies won't be completely fulfilled until Jesus returns the second time. But what Jesus did here seems to be a preview of the fuller cleansing that is yet to come. And so Jesus had consideration for his father's house. And immediately after this aggressive act of of clearing out the grounds and those who bought and sold and the money changers and the seats, we see his compassion in verse 14. And this is the, the final healing in Matthew's gospel. And this is number two in our outline. Compassion for the Father's people in verse 14. Compassion for the Father's people. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. 
Now, there's not a lot that I can say about this. Jesus models what the temple ground should have looked like. In such a peaceful verse, really, it really is just a, a peaceful verse and, and, and a scene here of, of kind of tranquility after driving everyone out, the blind and the lame, they come to him. In the temple here again, likely means in the court of the Gentiles, the blind and the lame were not allowed in the other areas of the temple grounds. And once again, Jesus heals those who were blind, which was a sign that he was the Messiah. Now, Matthew here might intend an allusion to David. Remember, Jesus is the son of David. David was the one who conquered Jerusalem the first time, and this is from 2 Samuel chapter 5. It says, the, the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites. This is when G David conquers Jerusalem. And the inhabitants of the land who said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. And so they're in this, this fortress of Jerusalem and they think nobody can get in here. Even the blind and the lame will, will keep you out. Our, our walls are too strong. 2 Samuel 5, 7, Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David, which also is the city of Jerusalem. Verse 8 says, And David said on that day, Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind, who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And so apparently a little kind of proverb kind of arose that day that the blind and the lame will not come into the house. We don't know what house that necessarily is, but that was a, apparently a, say, a saying in the days of 2 Samuel. And so David conquered Jerusalem with hatred for the blind and the lame who were supposed to keep him out. And they were not going to be allowed in the house. But Jesus, the son of David, the greater David, he healed the blind and the lame so that they could now go into the house of Yahweh. And so Jesus has turned the temple into a house of prayer. And he healed the blind and the lame theoretically in answer to his prayer. And so prayer is happening again on the temple grounds and we see his compassion for the weak and the lowly. And now let's look number three. Let's see the confirmation for the father's foes. Confirmation for the father's foes. Verse 20, chapter 21, verse 15. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And we'll stop there for now. The chief priest saw the wonderful things that he did, and I think that would include the triumphal entry that we looked at last week. It would include the, the driving out of the trade, which was a, another wonderful and powerful work that our Lord did, and they saw the healing. They also heard the children crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. And remember that the son of David is the Messiah, the king, the ruler of Israel. And so they see all of this and they, they hear all of this and they know that Jesus is making a claim to be the Messiah. Or at the very least, they know that he's allowing others to claim that title on his behalf. 
And they've already decided that he is not the Messiah. Their minds are made up no matter what wonderful things he does, and, and that's why they're indignant. That word there means angry or aroused, but it's an anger against what's presumed to be wrong. And so they don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. In fact, they refuse to believe it. And they're angered at the suggestion of the children. The children are continuing the cry from the day before Hosanna to the son of David, but the leaders are angered. Now here it's an interesting thought that they were not upset. So far as we know, they were not upset about the the trading on the temple mount. They weren't upset that the house was no longer a house of prayer. They didn't seem to mind that it had become a, a, a cave of robbers and thieves and people who are involved in all kinds of wickedness. They didn't care that God's name was defamed in the place where he dwelt and where he made his name dwelt. And as best as I can tell from the sources that I have, Caiaphas, the high priest, is the one that allowed them to begin selling there in the first place. And he also seems to have taken a cut of the prophets. And all of that doesn't bother them. But what does bother them is that they are calling, these children are calling Jesus the Messiah. And their question in verse 16 implies that if he heard the children crying out, he should have put a stop to it. Again, do you hear what these are saying? And I love Jesus' answer. Jesus said to them, yes. Do you hear what's going on? Yes, I do. He heard it and he accepted the title. And he points them to scripture one more time. Verse 16, Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read Again, nothing is more offensive to a hypocrite than the idea that they've never read God's word. But have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? This is a quote from Psalm 8. And at first glance, the quote seems to say that God prepared praise from children. But as soon as you think about it a little bit more, as soon as you think about it, you realize that the children are praising Jesus as the son of David. Remember, Hosanna had become a a form of praise, an exclamation of praise, and, and the children are praising Jesus as the son of David. And what's going on here then is that Jesus is claiming deity. Again, Jesus is saying that he is God in human flesh. And when we look at Psalm 8, and I want you to to turn there now, let's go to Psalm 8. The case only gets stronger because the psalm is addressed to Yahweh, to the Lord. And so Psalm 8 is to the choir master according to the the gittith, whether that's a, a musical instrument or a melody, we're not sure. A psalm of David. O Lord, or O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. 
Now, verse 2 is what Jesus quotes, and the the psalm, though, starts with Yahweh's majesty in verse 1. It also ends in the same note in in verse 9. Look at it there. It says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And so on the front end and on the back end, we're thinking about the majesty of the name of Yahweh in all the earth. But in between those two kind of brackets, what we see is that it speaks about man's glory. And it looks back to creation in Genesis 1, 26 to 28, where man was tasked to have dominion over all that God created. And so in verse 3, when I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings or than the gods or than God, a little, a little less than divine is, is maybe the best way to, to think about that. You've crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the work of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of <clears throat> the heavens and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the sea. And so man was made lower than God, lower than the heavenly beings. And David marvels that God would think of us at all. What is man? And then verse 2 that Jesus quotes is kind of tricky to fit in here. But it, it seems that the idea is that God hears the children and the babies cry. You see, God has a plan to overcome his foes. They're mentioned there, his, his foes in verse 2, because of your foes. And so God has this plan. He's going to overcome his foes. He's going to still the enemy. He's going to stop the enemy and the avenger. And to do that, to overcome his enemies, God does not need a mighty person. Even th- He can even work through babies and infants. And out of their mouth... God has established strength. And so we ask, well, what comes out of their mouth? Well, maybe he cries for help. Maybe as the, the Septuagint has it, maybe it's praise. But, but whatever it is that comes out of their mouth, God hears it and he uses it to silence his enemies. That's the idea here. <clears throat> and so when you think about that and when you understand it that way, it, it's really amazing what, how, how well this fits the temple scene. Because the cries of the children are being used by Yahweh to still or to silence the enemies of God who are the chief priests and the scribes. Now the Septuagint has praise instead of strength, but it, it, and it, it's because it, it comes out of the children's mouth. And so whatever they might cry ends up revealing Yahweh's strength, which is ultimately to his praise. And so his strength and his praise really become the same thing. And so again, to summarize this whole thing, Jesus says, yes, I hear them crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. And this is what Psalm 8 recognized, that God would use little ones to overcome his enemies. But again, the most striking thing is that what the Psalm says about Yahweh's praise Jesus takes as referring to the praise that the children are giving to him. And so Jesus is putting himself in the place of Yahweh, which would be blasphemy if Jesus was not God's son.
But Jesus is God's son. Jesus is Yahweh who took on a human nature to save his people from their sins. And verse 17 of our text then says, and leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. And so Jesus leaves them kind of a, a somewhat of a strong word there, departs from them. There's some hostility already that, that we've seen formed here. And so Jesus departs from the hostility. And he goes and he spends the evening in Bethany. That's where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived. And so we've seen these three things from Jesus today. We've seen, first of all, the consideration for the Father's house. We've seen his compassion for the Father's people in healing the lame and the blind. We've seen the confirmation for the Father's foes. He confirms that he is son of David, that he is Yahweh in human flesh. He does that by quoting Psalm 8. Now last week, we saw Jesus enter Jerusalem as the king. And here, Jesus came also, we see, in his role as the priest. And he came to the temple and he restored it to a house of prayer. And in only four or five days from this moment, on Friday, he is going to offer himself as the Passover lamb. He's going to lay down his life for the sins of his people. Jesus is our great high priest. He's the one who represents us to the Father. He's the one who presents us to God. And through him, we can come into God's presence. Jesus fulfills both the, the priestly role and the role of the sacrifice. And therefore, according to Hebrews 7.25, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. And so Jesus is our priest and he is our sacrifice. He is the one who is able to save us to the uttermost. And as our great high priest, he makes intercession for us and he represents us to God. Now, as we kind of close this thing off, I want us to think briefly through the three things that Jesus did in our text. Because what he did then, he continues to do today. Again, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And so let's go through these again in reverse order. In our text, Jesus used the children to silence his foes. And we can trust him in the same way today. You see, the Lord loves to use the weak things of the world to confound the wise. He hears us when we pray and, and he will overcome his adversaries and our adversaries. And he will glorify himself in the face of opposition, and we can take comfort in that truth. We saw his compassion, number two. 
And so as we think of his compassion for us, Jesus is our merciful and faithful high priest. And he sympathizes with us in our weakness. He cares for us. And we are his body. We are his people. And he will never leave us or forsake us. He has compassion for us as well. And that then ties in with what we saw under number one. He has concern for his father's house. And it seems that he has concern for his father's house because that's where his father's name dwelt. And in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, we are the temple. We are temples of the Holy Spirit. We are the dwelling place of God. The dwelling place of God is us individually as believers in Christ and corporately as the church. And God's name and Christ's name and the Holy Spirit's name is, is tied to us. It's, it's in us. And so this should then be a cause of both joy and fear because if, if Christ is concerned about the Father's name and that name is in us, it should make us both fear and rejoice. We should fear because if Jesus, who when he was limited to some extent by his humanity, if he would clear the earthly temple, how much more will he drive out our hypocrisy? See, he will not tolerate a pretense of religion. It made Jesus angry. It made Jesus angry. He does not tolerate a pretense of religion. And his church is not to be a den of robbers looking good on Sunday. But in reality, it's just a gathering of bandits hiding out from their sins. And so I think we should fear because we should recognize from this text that, that we should not mess with Jesus Christ. Do not mess with Jesus Christ. Do not be a hypocrite. But also, there's a comfort in this for every true believer. Isn't, isn't there a comfort in this that knowing that, you know, we know we fight against our sin. We know our struggle and we know that he knows it and we know that he's compassionate and that he cares about us. And in some ways, we are, we're like the blind and the lame. We, we come to him and we can, we can go to him. We can, we can come to him and recognize that he is gracious and compassionate and we recognize that it's a good thing that he purifies us. It's a, it's a wanted thing. It's a delightful thing that he drives out our hypocrisy and, and that the Father prunes us to make us more like Christ. It's good that he drives out our sin and that he drives out our ignorance. It's good that he won't leave us where we are, but, but he continues to work in our lives and sanctifies us. And he does it because he has put his name on us. We are his people. We are bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. And if he cares about the name of the Father, then he cares about us because those two things are tied together. And we are his representatives on the earth. And he is concerned about us as much as he ever was concerned about the temple on earth. And so there's a fear and joy in knowing that Jesus cares about us, that he considers where we're at. Let's pray. Father, we, we come before you. We thank you for this text. We thank you for our time in your word this morning. 
We thank you for the wonderful works of your son, Jesus Christ, for his work as our high priest. We thank you that that he cares about your name, that he cares about us. We thank you for his compassion. We thank you for all of who he is and all of what he's done for us. And we pray that you would sanctify us. We pray that this would not be a den of, of robbers and thieves, but that this would be a, a, a hideout of, of true believers who are, are genuinely seeking you in prayer. We pray that each one of us would be a, a house of prayer and that we would enjoy our fellowship with you. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.